This is Dan Fagellin. You're listening to the special AI Futures Saturday series here on the AI and Business Podcast. This 12-part series, as mentioned, is focused on AI governance, and this is our fifth episode in the series. We're joined this week by Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan is the founder of the U.S. Transhumanist Party, kind of a long ball candidate for president for the last two election cycles, and someone who's really carried the torch for the transhumanist cause in the United States and elsewise. We've heard AI governance perspectives from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, from the IEEE, from uh, the OECD. We've had a lot of great takes. And if you'll remember, this series is about stretching the imagination from the near term of AI governance into the more distant considerations of AI governance. So with each episode, we're going to be talking about the farther and farther concerns of AI, particularly when it gets more and more powerful. Zoltan tended to focus our interview on sort of the international AI race, particularly that between the United States and China, as well as some of the concerns about the fact that the winner-takes-all dynamic of getting to artificial general intelligence might be absolutely overwhelming and worthy of tremendous amount of investment in the near term. So when it comes to governance and the international considerations of AI governance, as well as the AI race, I think this should be a useful and interesting episode for those of you who are tuned in. Zoltan has even mentioned that China is fast becoming the most transhumanist nation on earth as they run up against less regulatory hurdles to do things like gene editing, and he believes that the same will be the case for things like artificial general intelligence and neurotechnology as well. Some interesting food for thought, and we're stretching our way farther and farther into the future here of where these technologies are taking us and what we ought to do about them now. This week's perspective, again, Zoltan is fine. Without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right in. So Zoltan, it has been quite a while. We had our first conversation, I think, over half a decade ago. And in this series around centralized AI governance, I wanted to get your thoughts. I haven't read enough of your own take on this, but are you for or against the general idea of pulling together kind of a global body around AI governance? Well, um, you know, that's a really tough question. Uh, Generally, I'm not for anything that kind of increases centralization. I'm a kind of a decentralized type of guy. Yeah. Just because I think competition makes things work better. But AI actually maybe turns or flips that on its head in a way because AI is such a potentially dangerous issue and such a potentially giant issue that maybe there is more reason for coordination. Though I don't know if I want to go as far as centralization of governments, Mm -hmm. but certainly coordination is incredibly important so that nothing goes wrong as we enter this kind of new age. Yeah, well, and and I think the people who both like you and are your potential detractors, you use the term libertarian a lot with regards to some of your take on things, which, you know, to me, I don't have a positive or negative connotation to it as a kind of a stance. You make the important distinction between kind of coordination versus centralization. Talk about maybe how that should go. Clearly, it's it's kind of breaking a bit of your mold of, of sort of the more dispersed thing to, to even say coordination. But what are those dangers that you think make it relevant? And how do you envision coordination versus maybe a stodgier centralization? Well, I, I think coordination, first off, is I think everybody, all the you know big people at the table have to sit down and say, okay, this idea of AI is going to transform civilization, most likely. And we're going to have more power than we've ever had and more complexity. And at some point, we might even have AI that has consciousness and things like that and governing power in itself. I mean, AI presence, okay, that's a little bit far-fetched. But most importantly is we're dealing with something that is 
potentially going to be smarter than ourselves at some point in the future. So obviously coordinating it is incredibly important so that we don't have one country that's maybe a little bit more rogue, like North Korea or even China, you know, end up dominating it. And they have their own version of what they want to do with it, because this is not something that, you know, is going to stay you know, in borders. It's something that is going to cross it very quickly. And the smarter, the better the AI is, the easier it's going to be able to cross. So I think you really have to kind of look at it in terms of almost how we dealt with uh, nuclear arms in a way. At some point, we had to sit down and say, wait a sec, we now have the power to destroy ourselves. We better, you know, forget a lot of our little conflicts and say, wait a sec, is the planet, is the species itself, you know, that unimportant? Or is it more important that we coordinate and start lessening, you know, what this is? Now, I'm not saying necessarily AI, nuclear power, or nuclear arms is the same thing. But what I'm saying is that there are moments when it's not like, you know, China's created some brand new engine and we can't deal with it. This is AI. It's going to take over our internet or water or gas systems or yep. power systems. At some point, it can run everything or computers. So we have to take a lot more caution. But that doesn't mean we have to go to a centralized government, you know, regarding it or centralized kind of governing body. It just means that we really need a lot of people, a lot of ambassadors crossing over and saying, okay, you guys aren't going to go that far and we're going to go this far and we're going to meet in the middle. So you use the nuclear analogy and, and I've, I've certainly uh, heard it as a framed as an analogy before as maybe the potential model for how this could get done with AI. In other words, we come up with some agreement as to the roads we're going to be okay to cross versus those we're not going to be okay to cross and there'll be checks and balances of sorts. Obviously harder to look for AI than it is to look for, you know, a big heap of uranium somewhere, you know, or, or a, a silo uh, with a missile in it. But do, do you see that generally that sort of checks and balances and shared vision and constraints as maybe the the starting template? Well, I, I do think it's just at least at the very least, it's a good historical perspective, you know, to understand what happens when you create something that so dramatically changes the geopolitical landscape. And AI is a, is going to be a bigger change than that. Yeah. I mean, because we all know that it's very possible that some country creates an AI that is just simply stronger than all other computers or codes or viruses or whatever on planet Earth. And that person, that country then has such a, a, a geopolitical advantage if they wanted to take advantage of it, which is yeah. one of the reasons why I've emphasized again and again, especially I do some consulting with the military, that you really need to spend a lot of resources. This is against my libertarian bias, but when it comes to AI, we need to spend the resources to make sure that a democratic nation ends up with the most powerful AI or it ends up leading the AI race because I worry that if China does, they may use it for what they consider their greater good, but that greater good ultimately stems from a communist kind of regime or an authoritarian regime. So yeah. it, we, we end up in a very serious situation here where I generally don't like centralized anything. However, in this case, it may be better to, to do something similar to that because of avoiding cataclysmic error or cataclysmic possibilities of what might happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I use the term sometimes of final kingdoms. I mean, whoever is to create what is post-human would, would sort of, I mean, that would be winning. That's how you yeah. win. That's exactly, I mean, that's the way and you, you do it. You so. win with AI. And that's the big thing is, Unlike the nuclear war where you sort of just destroy countries and destroy people and some survive, AI sort of is a winner takes all. There's not going to be a second AI. There's going to be one AI that sort of dominates all the others. And I've written about this for Vice. You know, I call these things um, 
you know, first of all, I wrote about the AI kind of arms race a long time ago, and I wrote about this thing called the AI imperative. And the AI imperative says that you must win the AI arms race because every other race that is before it is sort of irrelevant in terms of this, and especially from a military point of view. And I've, I've even gone on record saying how people said, well, how much money would you spend on making sure that we develop the very first truly or the strongest AI? And I said, well, I would go to the brink of bankrupting America because if we don't and some other nation gets it, they're going to and they decide to use it like Putin decides to use it. They could stop America overnight. They could stop everything. And, it, you know, and I don't want to be this kind of conspiracy theorist or naysayer. Yeah, like or the sky kind of, is falling or something. Yeah. But at the same time, this is game theory. AI puts a whole new look on game theory because there really is a winner takes all scenario. I, I mean, I tend to agree with you strongly there. I, I definitely think that, you know, I'm wary of a lot of what Europe is doing on the regulatory side because while I'd love to be both safe and strong, it is pretty clear that in the state of nature, strong is sort of, it's the only game. It's the only legitimate game uh, in town. That isn't to say it needs to be brutal, but yeah, it's, it's not like China slows down because we want to be careful about privacy, security. Not that those things should be thrown away, but hopefully they could strengthen the innovation engine rather than clog it up. And jeepers, that second scenario is something I'm spooked by. Is that something that you think about? All the new governance and regulatory things, some of them seem quite noble. I don't uh, disparage all of them, but I do fear that instead of making us safer and stronger, they would slow the pace of strength. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think we have to be very careful following any model that Europe takes at this point. And the reason is that when you actually look at how much innovation Europe has done in the last 30 or 40 years, it's almost none. And I know everybody loves, I go, look, I go to Europe. I love it. It's wonderful. Yeah, Everybody seems yep. happy. There's awesome not very food. many poor people. There's very yeah. few homeless people. I yeah. know Europe is a better place to live than America on a scale of like, you know, one to 10. I understand that. That's beside the point though. Europe, people would be dying from a lot of other diseases, cavities, and other things like that had the Americans not come up with a huge amount of innovations over the last half century and, and century. And again, I'm, I'm sort of you know joking a little bit by saying people would yeah, die from yeah. cavities. But we have been the engine of innovation, and that has come from the hard choice of capitalism, the hard choice of competition. And if all of a sudden America becomes like Europe too much, the innovation may rest in the hands of China or in Russia or other places. Yeah, yeah. As soon as that happens, we lose control of the most important things that have changed the last century and will probably change the future. I, I hate to say it, and I'm not trying to defend capitalism or any other system. What I'm just simply saying is America has driven innovation, and that has left us largely in control of making the world a better place. And because we're a democratic nation, that's worked out okay so far. However, Europe is putting regulations on everything without actually inventing anything. And that's just slowing the world down. I fear that that would be the pessimistic, but maybe the likely scenario. I definitely, just coming back from the OECD's talks about AI policy among OECD countries, you know, I think it, within that structure, I think they are definitely concerned about economic predominance and, and productivity as well, not just regulation. But there's certainly a lot of conversations that are purely on the slowing, purely on sort of uh, an emphasis in many regards on noble things like human rights and, and what are, you know, colloquially referred to as Western values. I'm not the kind of person that says, oh, well, Western values are always better. I'm just saying I like voting. I'm not religious. But if I was, I'd sure want to pray to stuff without anybody hurting me. Like I'm down with that kind of stuff. Like I'm just down. But I think that 
there's a chance that I, I feel this, particularly in Silicon Valley, maybe you have as well. You travel around a lot in the United States, obviously you're on the campaign trail now. In the Valley, I got the sense pretty thoroughly living there for three years that it almost feels like all the freedoms that we have are like in the air. They are taken for granted. And that even if the West was relatively technologically decimated, we're just far behind China, far behind China in terms of innovation and, and technological predominance and economic power and relative military might even, that still all the Western nations were, would be pervaded with the values that, that we've upheld as if they are just in the ether. When my supposition is that the relative might and the relative economic and technological progress of the West, the innovative West, has, has actually been what has bolstered and been kind of the buttress of those values. I don't know if you share that sentiment, um, but my fear is that there is a teeter-totter on both sides here. Well, I think there is definitely a teeter-totter. And, you know, I saw a documentary, in fact, I think it was made by Obama's, President Obama's production company called American Factory. Have you seen that yet? I have not, but I heard it was actually quite good. It's astounding because it shows the two different work ethics of the same factory between Chinese workers and American workers. American workers, of course, demanding unions and demanding easier benefits and all these. And the Chinese workers just like going overtime as much as possible. And they don't care if they're like bleeding, working. But the point of the story is we've developed a different value system. America has grown this thing called the Duchess disease, where you've, we've kind of just grown complacent and we we feel like, oh, we, we're the richest and everything's nice. Oh, and, the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great country. It's However... Scary. If you have a country that's five times our size, almost five times, it soon will be, uh, and you have as many engineers in that country, China, as one day we're going to, you know, essentially we are going to have workers, and they have a hard drive, it doesn't take a genius to tell you they're going to pass us, and they're going to pass us not only in innovation, but they're going to pass us through hard work, and they're going to pass us through sheer numbers. And, and then we have India. India also is going to become the most populated yeah, nation yeah. here in 15 years, and they Big have time. sort of this similar, this similar thing going on. America could very quickly fall behind. And when that happens, we're going to be taking our decisions from very different cultures. Right now, we've kind of had this Judeo-Christian culture. It sort yeah. of embraced capitalism. It embraced humanitarian values. But there are India has sort of a, a caste system. China has this also this you know authoritarian regime. I mean, they are very different systems to lead the innovation forward. Who knows what could happen in 20, 30 years? Yeah. And I, and again, I, I'm not, um, you know, and I don't know if you are either, but necessarily saying that the Judeo-Christian shtick is the winning or ideal ball game, you know, Confucian values writ large. Certainly, it would have been a harder ball game for Mao had uh, Pericles been revered as much as Confucius in China. It would have been a very, very hard ball game for Mao. But uh, so help kind of pave the way. But Confucian values have some of their merits. And, you know, there's various and sundry Hindu beliefs, some of which I'm sure are wonderful. But like you said, it, it sort of would be a bit disjointing to the current value structure, and we couldn't expect it to exist if our relative technological predominance was just like in the toilet. So I'm going to share that sentiment with you. Well, I was going to say, and also, you know, when you look at these cultures and you consider AI, you know, Hinduism is <laughs> comprised of essentially 42,000 gods. Yeah, it's wild. You know, and Taoism, you know, these, you know, the Eastern things, they're much more secular oriented. Now, of course, I'm a secular person, so I've Same always, here. you know, it doesn't, doesn't really bother me. But I understand the framework that the West lives in, that we still celebrate these things, you know, Christmas, Easter, and, you know, it's built into our consciousness yeah. from being a baby up. And I think um, when you talk about AI, India and China might have a much, and this is why I've told people, China's becoming the most transhumanist oriented nation on planet Earth. They have the first genetically done baby and all this other stuff. And they're going to move forward without the kind of hangups that we have in our somewhat conservative Congress, somewhat conservative yeah. administration. 
And that is also another reason that I think America has to be very careful because we've led through innovation because we've never had competitors and Judeo-Christian framework has worked for that. But now maybe other frameworks are going to work even better. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, we've never had competitors or at least many of us, right? Certainly I have never known in America of relatively weaker might than other nations, but clearly they're out there now, or there's at least one of them. With regard, I've never heard anybody say that China is becoming the most transhumanist nation. I've heard people mention things about Japan and, you know, the, the Shinto kind of robot side of the ball game. You know, obviously everybody's heard of the genetic experiments in China. Do you believe that there's other cultural factors that are shifting them towards kind of brain computer interface higher kind of post-human intelligence trajectories? Because I'm actually unaware of kind of the other factors that might be uh, backing your opinion there. Well, it, it's not so much that they are leading us at this point because they're not. You know, we're still, Silicon Valley and other places are still yep. dominating. It just happens to be that when it comes to these ideas, when it comes to, am I free to do this or is the government going to kind of clamp down on me? We have to say, like, you know, we've had cloning technology forever, but it's essentially outlawed in every single state, you know, more or less. And that has made it difficult to move forward with some of these things. And I think if a country that is trying to overcome America and also has now four times its population, people are going to say, well, how can I make money? I mean, America can't do this because Congress or the White House is getting in the way. Maybe this is the first trillion dollar company. And that's where I think there's a lot of Chinese out there that are, especially as more and more of them get educated, more and more engineers come into the field, it's going to be the, the de facto transhumanist nation. And um, I just oh, think a wow, lot of it has wow. to do with just not having, you know, when I talk about brain implants, when I talk about anything, because 80% of America is Christian, the very first thing they all say is, ooh, wait a sec, that, that kind of conflicts with my overall yeah. thinking. Whereas yeah. the Chinese people don't think that. They're like, wow, can this make money? Is this going to be good for my family? Yes. Then they move forward. And that's really, that in my fact is a huge danger. I don't understand all the individual cultural nuances. I've, I've heard sort of different emphasized values, but it, it does seem pretty clear that um, the CCP would not ban, let's say, some transhuman trajectory technology for its own sake. Like it would be banned or allowed in so much as it is coherent for CCP power and predominance. Just like, you know, when China eventually comes out with whatever their formal, here's us China AI ethics ideas, and they pass them along to the West, it'll be a nice bound book of things that ultimately, subtly, overtly, subconsciously, whatever, are really sort of baked in to ensure uh, CCP predominance in, in sort of economic and military and technological competition, while the West is going to pass along every affinity group, literally every imaginable affinity group is going to be at each other's throats in the West, competing over whose AI ethics should win, while China's just going to be like, here's a unified plan for us to just dominate. Like, like actually win the actual game while you guys fight amongst yourself like children. And so certainly there's benefit to sort of internal conversation, but there's also the race dynamic that I think you're articulating where it's like, wow, they're, they're not going to be dealing with that same hubbub. So we might want to kind of keep the pace up here. With that being said, Zoltan, and just where, wary of where we are on time, we talk about being able to have some kind of a collaboration internationally around AI and around kind of the post-human trajectory so that it doesn't sort of scramble into some wild direction a little bit too quickly here. How can that be done across cultural boundaries? I think the theory sounds awesome. It also just sounds so damn hard. Well, okay. So, you know, this is where it gets more complex, especially with kind of President Trump in office, because he sort of ran on this evangelical Christian might and, and you know, Mike Pence being a very religious person, the vice president. But I think deep down inside, 
when we talk about these things, I think we're talking about, you know, uh, essentially Congress willing to give up some of their religious values on the face in order to kind of succeed. And, and, and I think in that sense, it's one thing to be religious. It's another thing to lose ground against China. And I think we're going to learn to compromise. Besides, it does seem like religion, when you look at the Pew studies, are going down in America. Yep, yep, yeah. So I, I think that's that really the key is we're going to give in. And, and in order to win the innovation game, we will give up our religion. And that, that seems very controversial. Everybody will say no, but I think hopefully that will happen. Huh. Wow. Okay. Hot takes from Zoltan here on the, on the show. So, um, certainly you see these groups spinning up, these Christians, transhumanist groups or other sort of pockets, but it, it does seem like writ large, it is in many ways quite a stark break from the traditional tomes of religion as they are. That said, with this as a race, I think many of us here in the West are, you know, interested in staying strong so that Western values can kind of be uh, imbued into whatever this trajectory is that's ahead for us, uh, whatever these final kingdoms are, if it is that grandiose, well, you and I seem to suspect maybe it will be. So certainly that's important. But then again, war with China and or Chinese people, I don't think hardly anybody ardently wishes for, ardently looks for, uh, really has much against anyone in China even so much as just understanding that the political systems and the power structures are really what's going to get wrestled with here. Is it possible to make this race happen while also doing this kind of cross-checking diplomacy that you refer to in order to have some kind of global bounding box on what AI uh, should do. How might that shake out? Clearly, you and I don't have a crystal ball, but when you envision how that racing and that mutual bounding and sort of responsibility will work out, how do you foresee that? Well, you know, and just, you know, in my presidential campaign, we have an odd idea, but it, I've, I've been supporting it forever, which is the idea that in order to offset some of these challenges like AI and genetic editing that are really going to change the world here, it would be best, in my opinion, to start collaborating with countries already similar to ourselves. Like I have suggested that at some point, maybe we even consider merging with Canada. We merge with Europe. We merge with uh, Mexico. Even then, though, we'd still only have two-thirds the population of China. Yeah. But one thing is for yeah. sure, by combining continents, we actually have a lot stronger push in terms of the development of and, and, and the kind of the push that against China. Because right now, I really feel like when you come down to population terms, it's not a game anymore. You, you simply don't win against a country that's five times your size. So that's one way to do it. And uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, that automatically disqualifies me from running for the president and whatnot. But I think people miss out on understanding that companies have been merging successfully in the economic world for a long time. And countries have been doing historically too. Just because you think America's 200 something years old doesn't mean that we can't at some point become even more globalized and, you know, I was just, for example, the coronavirus is a very interesting idea because a lot of the medications that we get from America come from China. And imagine if all of a sudden we have a major crisis and we can't get our medications from, we can't just recreate this stuff. We're talking about flu medications and stuff like that all across the board. The point of the story is we are very, very interconnected. And I feel like we might actually do better by combining our forces with a lot of our already kind of close neighbors and allies. Yeah, and yeah. then we can negotiate better with China because right now it's very difficult to create this umbrella. It's like you have NATO, you have all these other organizations, the WHO and whatever, but they, they're not very effective. It might work better to try to put a combine and then have one bigger umbrella as two major 
kind of combined nations go at it and say, okay, because it's it's very interesting. Russia and America did very good on negotiating forever. It becomes very complex to negotiate when you have three, four, five, six or more people. It's really easy often to negotiate between one other people because it's a black and white world. And maybe that is the way this is going to go as people realize AI becomes the definitive issue and the definitive problem of our time, I think. Yeah. I mean, well, one of the reasons I'm very supportive of the OECD's AI work and am eager to be involved all the more in the future here is because the OECD is, you know, OECD countries are free countries. And the OECD is fostering conversation among what they refer to as in these events, like-minded countries, which you and I understand what that means, right? You get to pray to what you want to say, you get to tweet what you want to say, right? right. Nice yeah. stuff, like things that things that we just happen to like writ large. So that's the OECD shtick. So I see that as a convening body for those like-minded countries. This combination that you refer to seems really challenging, potentially necessary. You could also see why Chinese aggression might be a response to the seeing of that combination begin and that that would be a spooky thing. What would be kind of the key takeaway? And we'll have one last question after this, but we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap this point with this subtle one. What would be the way to potentially foster that kind of cross-checking checks and balances? Hey, we still need to be team humans, even though you guys have this you know, shtick that you're running with in, in the CCP, and we have this shtick that we do in kind of this other part of the free world here. What's the best way to keep mutual checks and balances going? Or is it kind of inevitable? Hey, we're everybody's going to build up their cyborg and AI, you know, armadas until one singleton emerges. I mean, does it have to be that violent kind of state of nature? Or is there a way where there's checks and balances can still occur? Well, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have a conflict. I think it's inevitable that at some point America and China have to stand up to each other. These things happen as long as we have people like President Trump in office and and you know and President Xi and whatever in China. These are, I think, these are somewhat ego-driven, you know, nations at this point. Whereas, yeah. you know, for example, I have a completely open immigration border policy. And I would suggest that China does the same thing where all of a sudden anyone can go anywhere, anyone can do anything, anyone can buy anything completely free. It's a much more libertarian value system. And that's the best way that we would become connected to China is that we could go there and they could come here and we could be very mutually dependent upon one each other, not just like through the borrowing system, but I mean through kind of intermarriages, uh, the the kind of cultural things. If we were to have open borders for the world, we could see Earth much more you know, I mean, the idea that Trump's building walls is only making it so that war at some point down the road is probably much more likely. If you were to let go everything and say, come here, let's do this, let's work together, let's work on AI projects, let's have Google in AI, and I want to Google China in AI, you know, I mean, all of a sudden it's like, well, it makes no sense to kind of fight with your brother. But right now, what's happening is, you know, the world seems to be closing its borders and becoming more like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm showing my peacock feathers. Yeah. And that, that's, I'm completely against that. I'm, compl- I'm a lot, I would rather want everyone to do everything that they want to do, total free trade, total free borders. And I think that would bring globalization to a point when we are just too dependent upon one another to have conflicts. Yeah, I mean, you know, Immanuel Kant's perpetual peace essays refer to this as kind of a key tenet is that if we're, you know, getting our bread or our timber 
you know, from these people and we shake their hands, you know, and we become friends with their uncle and we would, it's like, it's just so damn hard to go to war. And I think that that feels very much like it's the case. Anybody who has Chinese friends, right, that they're not all Xi Jinping, you know, robots, just like Americans aren't Trump's ego robots or something. Uh, you know, th- those bonds are very possible. But I think the language barrier and also the isolation of their internet bubble feel to me like the two greatest barriers to making that happen. What you're talking about, this interfacing whereby the bonds would be strong enough where we're not going to go to war with our brothers. feels like it's hard to be brothers when you're boxed out, well, geographically, can't do much about that, but internet-wise, right, great firewall-wise, and then also language-wise. Is there a way to chip towards this brotherliness you refer to, even if the world doesn't become aggregately more libertarian? Well, I, I think the way to do that is really just to approach China, instead of having a trade war, have have the exact opposite. Say, look, we want you to come buy our property. We want to go and buy your property. And maybe you can accept a few more values that we have. And we can, you know, I mean, already it's great because China used to be this giant communist nation. And now they're sort of this quasi-communist yeah, capitalistic yeah, nation. Yeah, yeah. It would be the more, the closer we get, like, you know, just to give you, I'm in real estate development. That's sort of what I've been doing outside of all this journalism and, and political work. And I have properties around the world. And if, if I could buy something in China, I can assure you, I would never advocate for going to war against China. And that's <laughs> yeah, the kind of yeah, thing that yeah, you have yeah. to think, well, as soon as you put a piece of yourself somewhere, and I'd like to get into the Chinese housing market, to be honest with you, I think it's a great one. But the problem is that it's been hard to do so right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's these are the kinds of things that we need to do. Instead of building walls, we need to make more commerce between ourselves, more dependent upon one another. And that way we would have a lot better chance to establish AI kind of, you know, working together, not necessarily a centralized government, but just the idea that we have the same rules. If we have the rules that we have a Google and Apple and all these in Silicon Valley and can apply them generally to our companies or their companies in China, we would be fine. Then we'd be able to have these kind of checks and balances naturally. Yeah, I, I, uh, well, I appreciate your acknowledgement of, you know, human selfish motives here, right? I mean, it's like if you, if you've got serious investments, you're going to be all the less likely to long for that to happen. And I, I think that language feels like part of this too. I know for me, it's like, you know, we got team members in the Ukraine and India and whatnot who like are like, you know, friends, right? I like fight for them, you know, if I, if I ever had to. Um, and that's only the case because we could just Skype, we could connect. And the barriers to the internet connecting feel also like barriers to the brotherliness that you refer to. Because if those friendships occurred, you know, you're not you're not going to enlist in war to, to go, you know, charge the streets of Shanghai if you've got, you know, six really good pals there who you've known uh, to course. not be bad people. Yeah. So final question here, Zoltan, as we wrap up, with regards to what, what business leaders should be considering, we've talked a lot of the, this kind of geopolitics elements. Hopefully there's some lessons on the political and policy side, or at least ideas to consider for listeners. You know, when it comes to business leaders and it comes to hopefully a, a proper governance, if you will, or collaboration, if you will, around this moving forward of, of AI power, which barring nukes seems to somewhat be inevitable. Um, are there core lessons that you hope business people take to heart in the States, in China, in Europe, wherever, to make that as peaceful and prosperous a human experience as it could be? Um, any lessons or, or things to ponder? Well, I think, I think first off, you know, and I just spoke about this actually in Portugal, it, it's really important that businesses understand that AI is the future and that there's kind of two things here. First off, AI must be used across businesses because to not use it means you're going to lose out on just being competitive. The second yeah. thing is that, and this is, we didn't really talk about this, is that there is a very good probability that AI will start replacing human labor at some point. 
And that becomes an own, in its own challenge, maybe a way to start creating a little bit of goodwill for human beings. Now, I support automation, these kinds of things. But at the same time, I don't want everyone to lose all their jobs at once because then only the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Yep. So I think if I was going to make any you know, advice, it's really, first off, you must, you must incorporate it. There's just no way to stay competitive with these things. And second off, you, you, know, you have to put pressure on governments. And that's why I support a, a universal basic income. You have to put pressure on governments to figure out a system before it's too late. Because once the next five, 10 years happens and people start really losing their jobs due to automation, AI systems across the, you know, not not necessarily super smart ones, but just ones that do all sorts of little things. You're talking about a massive amount of population that's going to be very upset if they can't ever find a job again. So in order to keep the AI growth going, we better keep the people happy. And that means, means, uh, you know, basic income. And that means governments take acknowledging even though it might not be good for getting voting politicians to office, that we're we're facing a, an, an age, a change here in terms of AI that could literally be something that's very different than capitalism has ever experienced before. So you actually think that that planning for those policies, planning for that disbursement of funds in order to ensure the the health, the safety, the sanity, the the relative peace of of the country will be very important to keep the innovation train running. Uh, this is this is like what yes, you're this is the most important thing. I've said this again and again. The I support universal basic income not to be a nice guy. I support it because the future is going to implode if we just keep making the rich get richer and the poor get poor because of automation. This is inevitable. I mean, I, I you know I started my my career as a, a journalist at National Geographic covering conflict zones. I've seen what happens in war zones. If you want to talk about how to destroy a society, go to war. So the most important thing to do is to avoid war at all. It's like sort of a, you know, a divorce or something like that. You have, there are certain things in your life you want to try to avoid from a financial perspective because they can be so devastating to the overall trajectory of where you're going. And I think war, nothing is like a war because you lose houses, you lose cities, then they become unlivable. You spend all this stupid money, you lose, you lose labor, you lose people you love. Yeah. So whatever happens, governments need to take it seriously as well as companies and make sure that even if automation comes, it is able to provide so people are just like, okay, I can accept that I don't have to work. A lot of people are going to enjoy not working and just doing whatever else they want to do. Yeah, yeah. Lessons learned and things to ponder for the enterprise world as well. Zoltan, I know that's all we have for time. Thanks so much for being able to be here on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So that's all for this special AI Futures Saturday series episode. Episode six is going to be airing next Saturday. We're going to be continuing our drumbeat of moving farther and farther into the longer term consequences of AI and AI governance. We've got some excellent guests ahead, so stay tuned on the weekend if you've enjoyed these episodes. I really would love your thoughts. We've had a bunch of great survey responses thus far about this particular series. You can go to emerge.com slash pod three, that's P-O-D three, and it's literally one multiple choice question and one little box to fill out about what you've thought about this series. Do you want to see more of this on the weekends? Do you want to see this as a separate podcast altogether? Do you want to see some different topics covered? I'd love your thoughts, love your ideas. As many of you are aware, 
really everything that we do on the show is based on what listeners want and what our Emerge Plus members want and what essentially our community cares about. So share your thoughts about this series, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, emerge.com slash POD3 and share your ideas. You'll get an email back from me directly if you fill out the form there. So hope all's well and looking forward to catching you on the next episode in the AI and Business Podcast. We're going to be diving back into AI use cases on Tuesday, so stay tuned and catch you soon.